Uh, if you're a guest with us today, there is a connect card in the chair in front of you. If you'd take a moment before you leave today to um, fill that out for us and share some information with us, it would be meaningful if you'd like to. Uh, it's always interesting to me. I know uh, folks are sometimes looking for a church home, and, you know, it's a process, so we respect that. But if you um, are interested in sharing some information with us so that we can send you emails about what's happening in our congregational life and uh, ways that you can connect, we would be grateful uh, for that. Opportunities to pray for you and just get to know you better. Turn with me to First uh, Corinthians chapter number 15, and we are going to resume this long chapter, one of the longer chapters in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we've looked at three other uh, messages in this chapter, all of them on the subject of resurrection, and so we'll conclude today with verses 50 through 58, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning there in uh, verse number 50, and the scripture says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We, sh we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for its timeless truth. I pray that you'll speak to us from it as we look at these realities and truths today. God, we thank you that you've loved us and you've shown us who you are. And so we pray that we'll be reminded or we'll be informed today about the idea of what life is, its purpose, its ending, God, our preparation. We pray that you'll prepare our minds and our hearts now, and I pray that you'll create openness in us to receive, to receive your truth, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I have the weather app on my phone. I don't know how many of you use something like that, but the weather app is kind of scary. They always send you these notifications about the end of the world. Have you ever noticed that? They don't stay in their lane like they send you other stuff, and it's like this week, the um, one of the uh, messages that they sent was a video about hunger stones. Did anybody see that, hunger stones? Okay, well, this is new for everybody but me, but uh, it was a story about how that in the in uh, certain Czech and German rivers, they had placed these stones that would only appear when drought happened, so they were at the bottom of the river, they had been placed there during a time of drought, and now that uh, for the last several years there have been the same kinds of droughts, these hunger stones have started to appear with messages that say things like this, if you find me, weep. That's what it says. Not very encouraging. Like, if you find me, this portends bad things, drought and famine are on your way. 
And so, you know, my preference for the Weather Channel app is that they tell me whether it's going to rain this afternoon, 30% or what. They've got sophisticated um, radar, you know, stuff, but they can't tell me whether it's going to rain, but they can tell me within a day or two when the end of the world is, you know. And I'm like, no, just tell me whether it's going to rain today. But, but the, the, the idea in this passage that we've just read is that the world is going to end one day. That history has a, there's a finality to history. The history that we, has been recorded and experienced. So whether it's a thousand years from now or whether it's a week from now, the Bible teaches that history will, it'll culminate. There's a conclusion that God is sovereignly in control of history and that one day he will bring history to an end. And the whole point of this passage that we've read today is to remind us of the fact that Jesus has conquered death and that we need to be a people who are prepared for the end of the world. That even if the world doesn't end, if it doesn't expire in your lifetime, you have an expiration date. You do, I do. I've heard people say the ratio of those that are born to those that die is exactly one to one, right? So we, we have to think about that and be prepared uh, against the eventuality. It's not a possibility. It's an eventuality that we are mortal and that we, unless Jesus returns in your lifetime and my lifetime, we will die. And we need to be prepared against what's next, what happens after that. By the way, the Bible is very clear about what happens after that. It says it's appointed to man once to die and after this judgment. That what happens is that we stand before the person who created us, the almighty uh, God, and that we, we will face him either as savior or as judge. But now is the time that we make, uh, uh, we have a response to him. We respond to the good news. So as we think about resurrections, realities that we see in this passage, it's going to show us some uh, interesting ideas. There's a caveat that it mentions about death that we want to look at as a part of our lesson today is this me in this message. But the first reality that we see in this passage that it teaches us about who God is and what he's doing is that redemption is possible. That is good news. The reason that this congregation exists is to proclaim good news. We want people to know that no matter what we've done in life, and the Bible teaches that every person sins and comes short of the glory of God, and that there's not one righteous. So the Bible says whoever we are, we have a, a need, a significant need. And that redemption is possible. That whatever we've done, God promises the possibility of redemption through Jesus Christ. Just as uh, we've already sung about the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So redemption is God's purpose for people. And the scripture shows us that our present our present. Flesh and blood bodies, it says, are not adequate to the experience of heaven's environment for life with God. We are mortal, but we said last week the truth is once we're born, there, there is before us immortality. Immortality. We're mortal now. We have an expiration date, cradle to grave. But the, the scripture teaches that the inside of us is a, a some, something that's immortal that's the spirit that's been created by God and that 
after uh, death happens, resurrection happens too. But this mortal part of us, our perishing bodies, are not satisfactory for the environment of heaven. Something has to happen. A transformation has to occur. In the Bible, it's called glorification. Glory, we hear about a lot. It's being changed into a person that can have a life with God forever. And he makes that possible through what Jesus did for us. It's a little like if a person uh, went to the moon and they tried to step on its surface without an air-supplied suit. You know, you couldn't make it. There's a need that we have that something outside of ourselves has to be provided for us to prepare us for life with God who is holy. And, and this passage is showing us that we need to uh, be ready against that time. So it's, it's going to occur at the end of our life or if Christ returns and intervenes in history while you're still living or others are still living which the Bible maintains. I like in 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5 how Paul expands on this thought of like what it is to be a mortal, what it is to be a person. And he says there, so, uh, first, uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, beginning with verse 16, he says, we do, So we do not lose heart, though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We're I was talking with someone about this earlier. We saw uh, on PBS Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. Remember Frankie Valley? Anybody? Some of you do. Some of you do not. He's 88 years old, and uh, we were like, "Wow!" And he's singing with these guys. I'm like, "Those are not the original guys that he used to sing with, because they're all in their 30s and stuff like that." But um, but he had a still an incredible voice. I was amazed that that guy could still sing with that falsetto tenor kind of voice that he has. But it's it, but he couldn't. He wasn't doing the dance moves with those guys. You know, they're still dancing. He's not. But it's what happens to us. We talked about this some uh, last week. Is the reality is that inwardly, hopefully, we're becoming more and more mature. Outwardly, what happens as we advance in years is that, like you've heard people say, if you bend down to pick something up, you look for other things to do while you're down there, you know. We groan. We're in these bodies that are aging, and they begin to show wear and tear. And so it says, therefore, our outward person is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look at the things that are not at the things that are seen but at the things which are unseen and the scripture says the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal that there's a a way that a believer and Jesus comes to view the world that sees the things that are happening around us as being as belonging to a temporary existence and that we are uh, sojourners and travelers toward our, our home. And he says there that the, there's a transient world, but we're pressing on toward an eternal world. He says, for we know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on the heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but that we should be further clothed, so that what is mortal 
may be swallowed up by life. Interesting, uh, the person that wrote this we know in the first century was a, they called him a tent-making preacher, but it was because he, his vocation, the way that he earned a living was by making tents. And they were a nomadic society. And so the analogy he chooses here is to describe the body that you're walking around in, comparing it to a tent versus a, a house, you know, a sturdier structure. He says this thing that you're walking around in is like a tent. I've shared before, like my view of tents is keep away from them, you know. All the bad experiences I ever had mostly happened in tents. Like it was the smallest tent in the world because I don't have camping stuff. Or it was the hottest day in the world when I went camping. Or it was the coldest or wettest. Or there were the most mosquitoes, you know. Those are my camping experiences. But he says the body that you're in is comparable to a tent because what happens to it? Across time, if you own it, it deteriorates it wears out it wears thin the older that uh, that thing gets and it's saying here it's using an analogy that I think has it's two pronged on the one part it's describing physical life and what happens as we grow older but the other part of it is talking about being unclothed and clothed and it's saying that we have to be prepared for life with God and we lack righteousness we lack it. You know, if we're honest with ourselves and we, we know ourselves better than anybody, we would say we're deficient, right? In some way, there's, we've disappointed ourselves. I mean, I don't know anybody unless they're like a, the worst narcissist who wouldn't say, yeah, I've disappointed myself at times. I've lived beneath a standard that I think would be the standard that's true about what it means to be a decent human being. And God is the person who gave us those standards, who gave us that morality and an understanding of what it means to be a moral person. We'll see that later in this passage. But the Bible says our unrighteousness has to be clothed. We have to be prepared for what heaven is like. And the only way we can be prepared is through the righteousness that Jesus imparts as a gift. He gives it as a gift, the Bible teaches. And when we think about, I think about the story, I was thinking about the prodigal son. You remember that in Luke chapter 15, how Jesus has told a series of stories about the joy that God has when the lost are recovered. And he talked about a lost coin. He talked about a lost sheep. And then it got dear because he started talking about a son, a child. And he, he said, he used the illustration of a son who told his father that he wanted his inheritance. He, he did this very rude thing. And he's like, I want my inheritance before you die. Some people say it was like saying to the father, I wish you were already dead. But he wants his inheritance. And he gets it. And you remember how the story goes that it says he, he wasted all his livelihood on riotous living. So he took all the money that his dad had worked for and he went out and spent it on frivolous things, immoral things is the impression that we get. But at a point he runs out of money and he runs out of friends and the Bible says he gladly would have filled his stomach on the pods that the hogs ate. He would have eaten the same things that the pigs ate. But it says nobody gave him anything. And then it, the scripture says what? He came to himself. He, he began to understand the circumstances that he was in. He says, here's what I'll do. 
I'll return to my father and I'll say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But could I come back and live with you as one of your hired servants? Well, what does the father do? When the father sees the son come and it says that he did the most undignified thing that a Jewish uh, elderly person could do, he hitched up his, his robe and he ran. He didn't wait for him to come home and make his apology. He ran down the road to that son and he embraced him. And he says, put my ring on his finger and what else? Put my robe on him. Take these tattered, dirty, hog trough clothes that he's wearing and replace them with this clean stuff that I've got for my house. And he received him not as a servant but as a son. This my son, he says, was lost but now he's found. And he killed the fatted calf. And he made celebration. Why? Because that is what God's heart is like. That's what his heart is like. And what he does is he takes this son and his deficiency and he gives him something that he needs. What he needed was everything, right? He needed everything, and that's what his, his dad gave him, is everything. So he, put, he clothes him, and it's a picture of what God does, that Jesus in dying for humans has made a way for us to have righteousness, which we don't have. We're deficient. We come up short, and yet he, he provides for us righteousness. And I think that's the picture of what the Scripture is saying to us here about what it means to be further clothed. Not being, we'll either be exposed and humiliated or we'll, be, we'll stand before, before the Father clothed and prepared, but only he can do that, and he does it as a free gift. Isn't that good news? The good news is he'll treat you just as the father in that parable treated that son. Jesus is saying, this is what God is like. He'll run to you. He'll embrace you. He'll bring you to himself. He'll prepare you for a life with him in heaven. So redemption is possible, and only God is the one who is in control of everything, including history, and that's what he shows us in this passage. He says, behold, I show you a mystery. In other words, this is something that nobody's ever uh, revealed before. But here's the mystery of what God is doing, that God is showing you. He says, not everybody's going to sleep, but everybody's going to be changed. In other words, not everyone will die. We just talked about the mortality rate being one-to-one, but when Jesus intervenes in history, there will be living human beings who don't die but are immediately transformed. That's what he's teaching us. Those living people that know Jesus, he's going to transform. It says in the, at the trumpet, in the twinkling of an eye. In other words, history is going to reach its conclusion, and it's going to do it rapidly at that, at that point, instantly. Matthew chapter 24 talks about that reality. And uh, you can pull that up, Donnie, if you would. The, Jesus here at the last, talking about last days, he says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. You know, uh, so when we speculate about when is this going to happen, it's uh, wasted energy. It's wasted energy. It, what, what's worth doing is living like it could be any time. That's worth doing. But the speculation around it that some people can get caught up in, that's a waste of energy. He says, but here's what it will be like. As the days of Noah were, so also will the uh, coming of the Son of Man be. He says, in those days, in the days of Noah, they were marrying, giving in marriage, eating, drinking, 
uh, until the day that Noah entered the ark. So it's just like today, in other words, people live their lives as if nothing really heavy is going on out here in the future. They're just living their temporary life as if that's all there is. And Jesus says that's what it'll be like when the Son of Man returns, when the, that's called the second advent, the return of Jesus. When he comes into this world, just as he ascended, the Bible says, physically, uh, visibly, he's going to return to this world and he's going to interrupt everybody's day-by-day life. That's what the Bible teaches. He is over sovereignly in control of history and he will bring it to a conclusion and he'll interrupt whatever people are doing at that time and hopefully we'll be ready. And the scripture goes on and says, as it was in the days of uh, Noah, they didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. That's what the uh, coming of the Son of Man will, will be like. In other words, you remember how the Bible teaches in Genesis that God said the thoughts and intents of people's heart were only evil continually, and so God sent a flood into the world. And he had a preacher of righteousness named Noah who compelled people, hey, get in this boat. This boat is the safe place. People inside will not be destroyed. People outside will be, destro- be destroyed. That was the, the narrative. And, and people rejected the truth. And they chose to live the, their life and their lie. And then the Bible says that the floodwaters came and those that were not in the boat were not safe, were destroyed. But the Bible says that's what the coming of Christ will be like. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. The other will be left. You can move to the next cell there. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. It says, if the know this, if the household owner, the master of the house, had known what hour the thief would come, He said he would have kept watch so his house would have been broken into. And all Jesus is saying here is live as if any time is the time. Be prepared in just that way. Cling to the one who's already clung to you and given given himself for you and provided salvation for you. The second advent, the scripture is showing us about the return of Jesus, that there will be people alive on the earth who will not experience death and resurrection. He says that's the caveat. There will be some people alive. When Jesus returns, those people will still be transformed. So it helps to frame reality for us. The scripture teaches that even though not everyone will be raised, everyone will be changed. And so if history has an expiration date, then we need urgency. Urgency in responding to God. If you have an expiration date, we need urgency in responding to God. And, of course, that's what, exactly what we're saying is the, is the truth. The Scripture says, I love this in 2 Corinthians 6.2. I remember this as a kid, hearing this in church. At just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I help you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. That's what the Bible says. The right time is now. This is the day of salvation. In other words, we think, and I can remember going to church uh, even though I didn't want to because my parents told me to and uh, attending church on Mother's Day and stuff like that up until age 24. It was never willingly until then. And sitting and hearing exactly this kind of message and knowing, knowing 
as I sat in that, you know, in that pew in those churches, white-knuckling it through until they would get done, knowing that everything I was hearing was true. I knew it was true. I just want to keep living my life my way until that was not tenable anymore. That's what happened to me. It became unbearable to live the kind of life I was living. To live a life of hopelessness was what, what I was doing. To live a life of purpose, purposelessness. And, and eventually, I found a, a way, as God miraculously worked in my life, to open up my heart to him and say, yes, yes, I surrender. I'm not going to fight anymore. I'm not going to keep trying to live life on my own terms. So I, I love that passage that says, now is the time. This is the day of salvation. In other words, if you know that Jesus, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, if you know that that's true, why would you delay? Why would you wait? Why wouldn't you say yes to that? Well, I mean, probably for the same reasons that I didn't until I did, but it was bad strategy. It was bad strategy. The scripture says now's the acceptable time. This is the day when God is saying to you, come, receive Christ into your life. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I like this as well. All this kind of dovetails. And, uh, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The uh, implore is a strong word, right? Implore. What are comparable things? Beg. Beg. I'm begging you. I'm urging you. That's what he's saying. He says God made Christians, people that know Jesus, he made us ambassadors, representatives. And he says, your job is to urge people to come into the kingdom, to receive Jesus. That's your responsibility, is to pray for, love, urge people to come to the only saving power and person, to come to Christ, to implore, urge, beg. And we think, uh, you know, if it's true that a person who doesn't have Jesus in their life, which is this is exactly what the Bible teaches, that person is careening toward destruction. That's what the Bible teaches. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's what the Bible teaches. If that's true, then a person might say, well, I don't care for your approach, manipulation, and uh, the, the things that you're doing up there, you know these scare tactics, but if it's true that you're careening toward destruction and I didn't warn you or I didn't warn others and then one day you find out everything that that person was saying actually is true, then, you know, we should beg, we should implore, we should urge. There's a parable that Jesus taught. You know, sometimes we think about the things that Jesus said. was Probably not a parable. Probably a narrative. 
Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember this story where it says there was a poor man named Lazarus who ate the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table and the dogs came and licked his sores. He was in terrible shape.
Death's day will be done. Be swallowed up in victory, the scripture says. Death had a long undefeated streak going, right? Up until this point, death was undefeated. Was on a roll and then death got knocked out. Like uh, Buster Douglas. Anybody remember Buster Douglas? Few people, few old people. You know who Mike Tyson is, right? The baddest human being. He, Mike Tyson, when I was uh, in, like in my early 20s, was the baddest human being in the world. Now he's kind of grown into this grandfatherly, you know, person <laughs> that we're not as scared of, although we probably still should be. But Mike Tyson was undefeated. It was inconceivable that somebody could beat him. He was a boxer, Mike Tyson. And then Buster Douglas, who kind of looked a little frumpy and stuff, knocked Mike Tyson out, ended his undefeated streak. Not to be silly, but the Bible says death was on a roll. Death was on a roll. But, but then death was defeated. That's what Jesus did. when he, He's already defeated death. It's already happened. He rose from the dead and he defeated death. And the, this is a, from Isaiah 25, 8. It's really a quotation from the Old Testament. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. When Jesus returns, death's day is done. It's over. The end, no more death. That's what the Bible's saying. And death's pain will be over. When Jesus returns, the sting of death it talks about is sin. And, and uh, it talks about where, O oh, death, is your victory and where is your sting. When Jesus returns, the sting of death is over with. The, the data says that 120 people die each minute. 7,425 each hour approximately. 178,000 people die every day. 65 million people die every year. And the Bible says that Jesus has defeated death. It's a taunting refrain that we find in the scripture in Hosea 13 uh, verse 14 that it's being quoted here. One writer says, Death is a a malignant adversary torturing people but Christ has drawn its sting. And it's harmless in those who are in him. Those who are in him. That's who death is now harmless to. If you're in Christ, it's the key. It's like the ark in Noah's day. Got to get in to be saved. You have to get in. You have to say yes. He, Jesus said, I'm the door. Whoever enters, find salvation. We have to say yes. We have to walk through the door. And he he says, "This once you're in, death is harmless. I mean, we'll die physically unless Jesus returns, but then you wake up in glory. You wake up with God. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. By setting before us, one writer says, the standard we ought to reach but never do, it, the law, becomes sin's stronghold. It makes sinners of us all, condemns us all. Nobody is, is uh, living a righteous life in the sense that they have perfection to offer up to God in some sort of exchange. Nobody has that. And so Jesus became righteousness for us. And then the scripture shows us that life has purpose. 
that purpose begins in Jesus. Thirdly, life has purpose. What's the resurrection reality for us? Life now is different than it ever was before. If not for Jesus, we'd be stuck in our sin. But the Bible says because of Jesus, uh, he overcame our trespasses and our sins and made us alive. Because he lives, we can live also. The Bible says the entire message of Scripture is that God looked at the dumpster fire of our efforts at morality. You know, the way that we are, our self-attempts at righteousness. And he even scrubbed that from the record because of Jesus' atonement on the cross and his resurrection. And it's beautiful, powerful, effective work. God says that there was a handwriting of offenses that was against us. I think that even includes the idea that we were like going to do this ourselves. He's like, no, I'll just count that in the list of offenses that are against you, and I'm going to scrub that away too. And then the righteousness that we get as a gift is what Jesus did on our account. And then life's purpose is uh, serving Jesus. I love verse 58. This in Galatians 6 verse 9, to me on days I'm discouraged are just good medicine. It says, be steadfast. Therefore, why? Because all this stuff is true. You're going to be uh, discouraged. It's going to seem like it's not true. There are going to be days when you're frustrated and there are going to be times when you're, you, you feel like giving up. And, a, and the Bible says be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in, in vain. There's a story of a guy named Adoniram Judson. I don't know if anybody, he was famous in Baptist life because he left America as a Congregationalist and became a Baptist in the ocean on his way over to Burma. He converted and began to believe that baptism was by immersion. And he allowed himself to be baptized, and he shows up in Burma as a Baptist missionary. But he spent 12 years of his life. He was brilliant, brilliant linguist. He translated the Bible into Burmese, and he left for these people a, leg, a legacy as a linguist that still in, impacts their country today. But he, he was there at a time when uh, it was Buddhism was violently opposed to Christianity. It was hard to be there as a missionary. His wife miscarried twice, once on the voyage over. Actually, the second time baby was born and lived less than two years. And these people were toiling in difficult circumstances as missionaries in Burma, Adoniram Judson. His wife died while he was there on the mission field. And Judson was imprisoned, hung upside down by leather thongs so that his head barely touched the ground during a time of civil unrest and didn't know for about 10 years whether there was going to be any fruit from what he was doing there. Now think about that, Judson, you know. Eventually they had a dozen believers or so over the course of about 10 or 12 years. And then... Eventually, multiplication started to happen. Local uh, Burmese person came to faith in Christ and began to, you know, have impact as a native who had come to faith in Christ. And, you know, I think about that guy toiling there, all the loss that he experienced, being imprisoned, you know, things that we really can't imagine or relate to that much, and wondering, is what I'm doing, does it, does it have any impact? And now they're colleges and universities in Burma named after Adoniram Judson. 
and there were believers, people who came to a saving knowledge of Christ, but he didn't know. I think about Isaiah and Jeremiah, who Isaiah was told, you know, when you accept this assignment, you keep speaking to these people, they're never going to listen to you. Isn't that encouraging? Wouldn't you like that assignment? You can talk to these people all you want to. They're never going to listen to you. Or Jeremiah, who they just, you know, threw him in a well. <laughs> we're done with you. Threw him in the bottom of a well. And, and, you, and people like that who were obedient to God, but it wasn't immediately evident. The Bible says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You may think it is. There may be seasons where you're not sure whether you're connecting or not, but God says, look, I see you. I see you. I see what you're doing. History has an expiration date, and even if it doesn't, the world doesn't end in your lifetime, you have an expiration date. We're facing God as mortals who need to be prepared. And the good news is he's done everything he can. He intervened. He's prepared a way for you to know him. And it's through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, a question I would like to put before you today. I know a lot of you. I don't know all of you. And even the people I know, I don't know everybody's uh, situation, you know, in terms of your faith. But if you, you've listened today and you, this resonates and you say, I believe that is true. I believe that Jesus is exactly who the Bible says he is. But you've never responded to him and said yes to his invitation to you. Is there any reason you wouldn't be willing to receive Jesus' free gift of salvation today? Today. Is there any reason you wouldn't be willing to say yes to him? The scripture says basically that or, or the reality is people can pray for you but nobody can cry out this way instead of you nobody can cry out to God instead of you you have to respond to God yourself if you wanted to you could pray in this way here's a, a an example of a kind of prayer you know sometimes people talk about a sinner's prayer at some point in our life we have to cry out to God we have to say yes to him. Here's a way that you could pray. Very simply, dear God, I know that my sin has separated me from you. I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. I want to live for you. That's a very simple prayer that if it comes from an earnest person, intersects with God's activity, that's, that's what God asks. He asks us to respond, to say yes. And so that's what I'm inviting you to do today. To pray a simple prayer like that, Dear God, I know that my sin has separated me from you. I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again. I want to live for you. And you can follow him in baptism as a public step of discipleship. That's what baptism is. It's a way of giving evidence. And Jesus, you know, told people, and John the Baptist told people, repent and be baptized. And that was the model and the practice of the disciples. They were baptized as an evidence, a public evidence of their faith in Christ.